This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Charlotte Higgins, I'm Chief Arts Writer at The Guardian and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to this event with Rupert Everett. He is of course a star of stage and screen, he began his acting career not a million miles away from here at the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow. He came to prominence with his role in another country, he has amused and delighted audiences in films such as My Best Friend's Wedding, on Broadway in Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit and in the West End in The Judas Kiss by David Hare. He's the author of two novels, Hello Darling, Are You Working?, and The Hairdressers of Saint-Tropez. And he's also the, the author of two volumes of memoirs, Red Carpets and Other Banana Skins, published in 2006, and his recent work, The Vanished Years. Both are hilarious, outrageous, and dish the dirt pretty comprehensively <laughs> on the world of celebrity. In The Vanished Years, he describes Simon Sharma, the historian, as a male lesbian more dangerous even than the lesbian herself when riled. <laughs> he describes film director Richard Curtis as, to Blair's Britain, what Lainey Riefenstahl was to Hitler's Germany. <laughs> and writes that Alastair Campbell had a nose made for aggression, or at least cunnilingus. <laughs> Tony Lingus. Oh, I thought it was this. <laughs> That's got things off to a good start. But as the Daily Telegraph's critic wrote, what really sets this book, Vanished Years, apart is not so much its brutal energy as its unexpected subtlety. It reads like Brideshead Revisited, rewritten by Sebastian Flight. Rupert Everett is quite simply a brilliant writer, and please give him a warm Edinburgh welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for coming, everybody. It's great to be here in Edinburgh and uh, very, very exciting because I did start my career off around the corner in Glasgow, so I always feel kind of at home here. Really. And that, that, was, that was a happy time, wasn't it, at the Sits? What was it like? Oh, I think for me, it was. Uh, I think when you start, start off in a career, it's always, it feels like the further away you get from the start of your career, the more it feels like the best time of your life. But <laughs> certainly going to Glasgow in the middle of the 70s was uh, really a revolutionary experience for me because uh, the Citizens Theatre is, as you probably all know, in the middle of the Gorbals. And uh, when I first went there, the gorbals were still standing. And so the stage door was down this very thin alleyway that's close. And the life in that place was just uh, unbelievable. And I think it was one of the great shames. Over the, the first three years that I was at the theatre, the whole of the gorbals got torn down. So that by the time, I think by 1979 really, there was just the odd street corner left with a pub and a few um, lampposts and everything. That brilliant, beautiful uh, architectural kind of village had gone, all gone. And I think it, it, was, a, it was a place of an immense character. And the theatre uh, was 
the most amazing theatre because really only people from the Gorbals went to it. And provided the play ended at 10.20 when the last bus left, uh, they really enjoyed themselves. <laughs> and if you happened to go on too long, literally you heard the seats going clatter, 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 clatter. <laughs> And everybody left at 10.20. But they were a, a, a really warm, uh, fabulous audience. And the people who ran the theatre uh, were very highbrow queens. I mean, really, really highbrow. And they didn't, it wasn't, a, there was no patronizing, it wasn't patronizing because they put on the most complicated plays they could possibly imagine. Uh, they didn't uh, try and talk down to, the, to, to, to their audience. They just put on what they wanted to see themselves. And so there was an amazing communion uh, that, uh, that is still very memorable to me because the, the performing there was always just immensely satisfying. Mm. And turning to writing for a second, Rupert, these performing, acting and writing have sort of come to converge in your career now and you've been writing for a long time. How do these two activities work together or against each other? Um, well, mostly, um, I, 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 when I don't work as an actor, I, I, after, when I wrote my first uh, memoir, I had a kind of just a natural gap uh, of about a year and a half in acting. And uh, I suppose this is probably partly due to the fact that my acting career has always been so up and down. Sometimes I don't ever get any work. So um, it was, quite a, it was a, quite a handy thing to be able to, uh, sort of like a lady knitting <laughs> when she uh, hadn't got anything else to do. I, I, I started to write. And so in the gaps between acting, uh, I, I write. Now I write more than I act, probably. Because I, what I really would like to do would be to write things for me to act and uh, that was always my main aim but, but that is actually harder to achieve than uh, than coming up with a book in a way yeah it's an incredibly tough process getting mm. a script to screen or stage yes isn't it? and if that's an extraordinary i mean your story of working on um, a, a concept that you had for a uh, sitcom where you would play the washington and um, the british ambassador to washington mm. Um, is, uh, I mean, I, I barely ever read anything funnier, but it's, it's kind of heartrending at the same time. It's so difficult to make it work. And you're, you, didn't, you ended up making a voodoo doll with some friends in LA and, <laughs> and kind of doing witchcraft on your executive producer, didn't you? Because he was so. Yes, only to, only, to try and, only to try and make him a little bit nicer. But <laughs> the thing is, in, in the end, though, that's the, the great thing about writing everything becomes a potential chapter. So, um, in fact, that experience, it could have been a, a very depressing one because it was really kind of the last gasp of a certain, of a chapter in my life. Um, in the end, it ended up being something uh, quite positive and funny. When you can turn something into words or you can turn something into a story, um, it, it, it makes it all worthwhile. The latest project I've been trying to do, which is... Um, I wrote about seven years ago a film about the last few years in the life of Oscar Wilde. And it's taken me seven years to get it to the stage it's at now. And maybe, if I'm lucky, uh, next year I'll make the film. And, and that does become a little bit uh, more scary as a dream to have because you suddenly realize if you really put a whole lot of time in, for example, middle age into something like that, suddenly you're 60 and you haven't managed to realize that dream. And I do feel quite aware at that point that it could kind of rather direct the rest of my life. Uh, a kind of miserable, bitter old age, not having ever got my film together. So I'm really um, straining every nerve to get it uh, on. Oh, and how does that, because you've played Oscar Wilde fairly recently, of course, in um, David Hare's play. I played Oscar Wilde because my financing of my film uh, was just not coming together. And I thought, well, 
what most, weirdly enough, what most of the financiers would say to me when I came with my project is they'd say, oh, well, how, how are you ever going to play Oscar Wilde? Uh, now, uh, all people say is, oh, I was born to play Oscar Wilde. And that's how perception turns around on you. But um, I figured that if I could maybe play it on stage or play him, I could do a kind of audition speech uh, uh, of how I saw the character of Oscar Wilde. And, and sure enough, it really did pay off because um, I, I managed to get the BBC involved and a great um, distributor called Lionsgate, a great English one. And slowly but surely, my whole um, financial structure has really taken off uh, since doing the play. So um, I'm very, very grateful to David Hare. Excellent. And I, I want to ask you, Rupert, is everybody you wrote about in Vanished Years still speaking to you? Or still, al still alive. Um, <laughs> everybody I spoke, wrote about in Vanished Years. Um, Yes, they are. I ask, of course, because not everybody you wrote about in uh, I haven't ever spoken to Simon Sh Shamer, but uh, funnily enough, Harvey Weinstein is still speaking to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite an achievement. Well, except I was quite... The, the thing is about things that you write about people. I wrote a, a thing about Harvey Weinstein, who is the head of a, a, a huge uh, uh, movie studio in America, and he's an amazing character. Uh, and I wrote this thing about him, which was quoted in the New York Times, but only one line. And that's the kind of thing that is quite scary. And a rather nasty line was quoted. Luckily, after that, in the book, I managed to say I really fancied him. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he was a character that made me feel the whole business was worthwhile. But um, it can be quite dangerous. But luckily, he's still talking to me. Because in, after the first volume, uh, Madonna ceased, is that right, ceased to speak to you? Uh, yes, she did. <laughs> and why? Well, how, um, how so? Well, I've never why? really got to the bottom of that, as the actress said to the bishop. Um, <laughs> but I think because uh, I felt that my portrait of Madonna in, in my book was, a, it was uh, written really in a very loving way. I, I admire her enormously. Uh, and um, my feeling about characters like her is it's such a shame that they're so overprotective of themselves because quite often with big American stars you read about them and, and they don't really say anything that can give you any idea of their either gorgeous or demonic or whatever kind of character they have which you know is always quite fascinating. She's an amazing, interesting, fascinating, dangerous uh, person um, and uh, I think to write about some, someone in a, in a realistic light is, is great and um, she was very upset that I'd said that uh, she was touching Sean Penn's cock under the table at dinner, but <laughs> I think that's kind of quite a fun thing to be doing. <laughs> you said, I've heard you say that you couldn't, these days you couldn't get arrested in Hollywood. Is that, is that right? Um, I mean, is your career in an up or a down at the moment? Where are oh, you? Oh, in Hollywood, it's non-existent, I, I think, at the moment. <laughs> um, my career, though, is, uh, is, it seems to be a, a law unto itself. It, mostly, I've found in the last, really, ten years, every job I've had, I've made up myself. Um, and that's partly pro probably to do with middle age is a difficult time for a guy because you're not between, you're between two stools. You're between playing the young part and the grandfather part, and you're kind of not so employable, so I put some of it down to that, but otherwise, uh, yeah, no, I'm not particularly employable at the moment. Well, that's good for us who like to read books. Yes, so no, it's very, and, and it's way. nice for me, actually, as well, in a way, because I like, uh, I, I think I've got to an age where I really love to do my own things, and uh, my, my real 
fantasy is to come up with my own film and try and get that together. And uh, so that's really what I'm trying to concentrate on. I'm very struck, you're very honest in both volumes of memoirs about how you really wanted to become famous uh, when you were very young. You had a kind of very well-formed fantasy of what it would be like, this fabulous limousines and wonderful lifestyle. Is it all it's cracked up to be? Well, funnily enough, I think the only bit of my career that really, really lived up to, to its fantasy was uh, going to work at the Glasgow Citizens because when we were at drama school, in the old days when, when we had subsidised theatre, everyone went to a repertory company after drama school, or you tried to, and you did auditions for all the different ones, and everyone had a different personality, and there was about three really good ones. Um, uh, one, Bristol, um, Manchester, and then Glasgow was this one where the rumour rumor had it that everyone wore makeup and had sex in the showers, and of course I was like dying to get the ASAP. Uh, and uh, they did very weird plays, and it was in the most dangerous ghetto in Europe, and you know, all these really exciting things. And it really did live up to uh, <laughs> everything I thought it would be. And, um, I, I made friends, great, my best friend really still is the, one, the director of the theatre and every job there uh, I, I arrived at and did with kind of breathless uh, with my heart in my mouth and uh, never, never did I uh, ever get depressed or bored or critical of being at Glasgow. Everything else uh, I found myself whining and whinging and complaining about uh, ever since but really that was the only thing that really lived up to my fantasy. Otherwise, uh, I got the whole thing completely wrong because uh, I came from a very military uh, disciplined background and I thought that show business and cinema would be, you know, a cross-dressing, bohemian, drug-taking, uh, you know, orgy, basically. But in fact, it's a very militaristic thing itself. Show business is extremely, an extremely organized uh, thing. Uh, and uh, so everything was a little bit of a disappointment to me in one way. I, I, I read... Colette when I was um, at, at school and I thought it was all going to be rather like being in Paris in, during the Belle Epoque and, and it wasn't. So, but now, funnily enough, I, I enjoy that side of it more. I rather like the uh, discipline side of it. I mean, talking of school, the, 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 the way you describe, actually, particularly in the first, well, notably in the first volume of, of memoirs, um, your experience of going away to school I mean, it's, it's, it reads somewhere between Harry Potter and Molesworth with a dash of St. Trinian's, of course, which uh, I'm no doubt you were able to draw on in your uh, <laughs> uh, role in that film. I mean, how, what was that, you know, this is such a kind of um, exotic experience for most of us, this kind of being sent away to school age seven and, and then going to uh, an extraordinary, Catholic, very famous Catholic public school. Mm, it was, well, it was, a, it was a weird time as well because... My, my parents' generation was, a, was the last generation of empire rulers. I mean, they, the empire collapsed, uh, you know, in the 50s and early 60s, really. And I was brought up very much to be an empire ruler. So those schools... That uh, would have been great. I, I know. know. <laughs> Where's my Put you in charge. I know. And the schools that I went to, my first school, was really full of old army officers who'd kind of come out of the army and ended up, you know, teaching something they didn't really know about in school. So it was a very eccentric, Centrinians-like uh, place. It was in a stately home uh, that was owned by some guy who hadn't got any money at the t for the time. So it was still full of rather nice furniture and, and, and pictures which we put chewing gum over and things like that. Uh, and it, looking back again, it was, rather, it was quite romantic. It's still 
I think that the thing that the English upper classes do to sending children away to school very early is one of the weirdest, weirdest things. But in the old days, it prepared them for empire. You know, you didn't have any feelings left uh, when you went out into the empire. So you could, you know, rule with a rod of iron and you could say, this is going to hurt me much more than it's going to hurt you, bang, uh, to some poor Indian. And you learn how to do that at school and how to take it. And how did you, and what about growing up gay at um, Catholic boarding school? How, oh, that how was heaven. That was like being in the... <laughs> that was like being in the club med, more or less. But I have to say, uh, I didn't get interfered with by any monks. I was always dying to be. And, uh, uh, and I, I didn't get. My school, my Catholic school, monastery school, was the subject of an amazing police uh, inquiry about uh, 10 years ago. And I think almost the entire cloister is in prison somewhere or other. But uh, I never got uh, fiddled with by anyone, sadly. <laughs> Uh, and, they were, and, and that, again, was an, another very nice uh, school, looking back, of, uh, of kind of old boys who'd done rather well on the rugby field and didn't fit into the real world, so managed to just go straight back to the monastery. And uh, it, was a, it was a very nice place, too. And I wonder what, about your relationship with Catholicism, because you're so, it so informs the way you write. I mean, when um, thinking about the imagery that you use, it's often drawn from the liturgy or the imagery of the Catholic Church. Um, the extremely moving section in the book where you take your father to Lourdes, um, you are friends or kind of have a love-hate relationship with a priest in Soho. Um, how, I mean, how are you with the, with the church? Well, you, I don't think you can fight. Uh, you know, it's so much part of the foundation of my life. I was brought up in a very, very Catholic way from right from the very, very beginning of my life. And various things, it's completely ruined. Uh, I think, you know, it made sex for me into such a complicated, uh, dangerous issue that I risked myself much too much. It, you know, when I, when I was a young man, it was right at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and I had thrown myself into a very reckless sexual career, which I needn't have done if I hadn't had this whole institution uh, criticizing the way I was feeling I was about to become. I think, uh, uh, you know, guilt and shame and, uh, in Catholicism is a, is a terrible thing. But at the same time, I'm still fascinated by it. And um, I, even now, last week, I was reading this amazing treatise by a man called Jeremy Bentham, who was one of the great lawmakers in the early uh, 19th century. And he wrote this thing, which I so agreed with, which is called Jesus, Not Paul. And I think what happened in Catholicism is that St. Paul, who was meant to have a blinding flash, uh, of uh, acknowledgement of Jesus. Actually, the blinding flash was just the cash register going ka-ching. And he really, he completely hijacked uh, Christ's message and he made Catholicism into what it is today, which is this horrible, judgmental, uh, finger-pointing, uh, uh, suffering-obsessed uh, religion, which is, I don't think, has anything to do with uh, the Christian message. And I think it just shows, one of the things I really feel is we're all so second-hand, we just believe. No one questions anything anymore about anything, or ever did, particularly in Catholicism. They just, they just accept everything, and I think there would definitely be room for somebody to really reinvent uh, Jesus and the, and the Christian message, because it's, it's absolutely amazing. I'm doing some documentaries about, um, called The World's Oldest Profession, uh, uh, starting in September, and um, this Jeremy Bentham character 
cotton me on to this amazing bit at the end of St. Mark's Gospel, which is when Jesus is um, in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, Judas arrives and uh, points him out to the, to the Romans. Uh, all his disciples run away. And it says in St. Mark, which is the only, not in any of the others, he was, he was left only with a stripling in loose attire. Now, in biblical lingo, stripling in loose attire means a male prostitute. And according to Jeremy Bentham, it means also a practicing male prostitute, because if he'd been reformed, he would no longer be in loose attire. And it really casts a, an amazing light on Jesus when you join the dots between Mary Magdalene, uh, the marriage feast at Cana, where instead of telling everyone to go away, he made more wine, uh, and the, the adulterous woman, and, his, uh, and, and then being accompanied at the end, uh, not by those idiotic remedial fishermen who've made our lives hell for the last 2,000 years, but by a stripling in Lusitana who should, really should have become Pope. Okay. <laughs> on the oldest profession going to allude to your own brief foray into this? It might do. You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> For those who are wondering what I'm talking about, you'll have to read the first volume of Rupert's <laughs> memoirs. It's briefly alluded to. Um, one of the most powerful passages in uh, Vanished Years is about your role in um, being an ambassadorial figure and a writer about the work that NGOs are doing abroad. There's some extremely powerful writing about going to Somalia, and there's some really um, prescient um, writing about um, going to Russia. And I'd like to ask you to read a passage from that. Yes, I'd like to, because the, the Russian situation, particularly... Uh, I, with homosexuality is really coming to a horrible head. And, um, and this, I went on, I, I lived in Russia for a year and a half making a film once. And then um, at a certain point in my kind of second coming in the, in, as a Hollywood actor, I got involved with charity and was working for a thing called the Global Fund, uh, which is a, a fund that is made by the G8 for uh, bringing um, medication for AIDS to Africa and to the third world. And then I started working for the UN, and with the UN I ended up at one point back in Russia uh, with this couple on the ground who looked like uh, Stephanie Powers, and um, I call them heart to heart in this. And, um, and I'm going to read you a bit about going to an AIDS clinic in, in, Mos in actually St. Petersburg. That afternoon we visited the Botkin Hospital in the heart of St. Petersburg, another rambling Soviet edifice and a labyrinth of passages and staircases. It's a 20-minute walk from the entrance, about which a few clapped-out ambulances are cluttered, to the bright, airy showroom on the third floor where three smart doctors in crisp white coats stand in the corner with their stethoscopes around their necks, looking busy. The room is white, the floor is white, the large windows are spotlessly clean. One of the doctors is a stocky woman with cruel eyes and grey, wiry hair, swept back like Einstein. She would have been nominated Lubishai Robotnik in the old days, best worker, and she's probably still a KGB grass. There you go again, says David. Well, her feet are planted far apart on the floor and she wears white clogs. She talks to Stephanie Powers and ignores the rest of us. Stephanie is careful and acquiescent, which is strange because most of what this woman is saying is a pack of lies. Her pearls of Russian wisdom are strung into English by a weird activist queen who runs an outpatients group and also works for the Elton John AIDS Foundation. He has a red face with a handlebar moustache and wears camouflage pants. Translating the woman's lies, he looks at us intensely, daring us to confront her. 
She insists that it's mostly drug users who are being infected with HIV in Russia and that the epidemic began only in 1997. She says that medication is available to all. She said that these are hardly, there are hardly any homosexuals with HIV. But that can't be true, I say. It isn't, says the translator under his breath. Da, she clucks defensively. But surely one in ten people all over the world are gay, not in Russia. Is that because they're forced to live in secret? Certainly not. The meeting quickly freezes over. Heart to heart are hell-bent on diplomacy and begin to wind things up. The translator winks and gestures for us to follow him out of the room. David and I slip out after him. I show you the AIDS department, he whispers, and leads us down a warren of back staircases and narrow corridors. With every step, the hospital gets shabbier and hotter. Gone is the pristine spaceship of the third floor consulting room. Soon, we're rushing down a subterranean passage towards a large pair of double doors. Any minute now, red lights are going to start flashing and a klaxon will go off and we will be dragged back to the Einstein dyke on the third floor. You need a card to get through the double doors. The translator produces one with a flourish. Ta-da, he whispers, and swipes triumphantly at the doors and the doors click open. Now the cameraman materializes at the end of the passage along with the photographer and the journalist from Russian Vogue who are covering the trip. The translator swears under his breath, quick, they are following us. We rush through the door, which closes mechanically, although the others manage to squeeze through as it clicks shut. Here, finally, is the situation with Russian AIDS. Rows of empty metal beds stand in wards of peeling green walls off a wide, gloomy corridor. Naked light bulbs hang from the ceiling. There is a rancid, dusty smell of floors washed with dirty water. Moss film was cleaner than this. The place is deserted. Finally, we discover a solitary man in a dressing gown and three sweaters. He's sitting on a bed in an empty dormitory at the end of the corridor, startled and upset by the sudden invasion of TV crew, photographer, celebrity and journalist. He comes to the door and tries to shut us out, but our Russian cameraman stands in the way, engaging him all the while through the lens. He has no sympathy. The patient's eyes bulge with impotent fury as he tries to tuck his head into his dressing gown and escape across the corridor, but the cameraman follows. A weird, slow-motion, split-second scuffle ensues. The cameraman holds onto the patient with his free hand, trying to turn him round, but the patient keeps on going, charging down the corridor towards the sanctuary of the toilets, while the translator, horrified, grabs the cameraman's arm, trying to pull him away. The cameraman, still filming, loses his balance. The camera falls from his shoulder and smashes onto the floor. During the moment of stunned silence that follows, the photographer from Vogue takes my picture. Flash! With a howl, the patient makes a final dash and locks himself into the loo. It's a tragic scene with comic undertones, another masterclass in Chekhov, and not unlike a wildlife documentary in which some poor wildebeest escapes a crocodile while trying to cross a river. We've completely violated this poor man's space, and we've observed his humiliation in our UN high heels, and the translator is, quite rightly, livid, emotionally and physically. He is now a purple gargoyle. He shrieks at the cameraman, who bellows right back, while the couple from Vogue have a half-hearted, nervous breakdown that all this could be happening in our country. The translator and the cameraman shout and point and tap their heads, more animal than human, as they hum lumber round each other, while the two fashionistas swoon in shawls and patent leather shoes in this curious drama in the diabolical corridor of the AIDS wing. Mariangela appears from a, from a door far away, giggling as usual. There you are, what's going on? 
heart to heart of Frosty when we regroup outside the hospital and in the car give us a talking to about going off-piste and the things that are very delicate here in Russia at the moment and they have been working so hard to get this far and that we all have to be very careful. The translator who's with us in the car rolls his eyes. But it's good for them to see what's really going on, he says. The truth is that gay people are afraid to go to the doctor. Why? Because the doctors normally report them to the police. Most gay people wish with AIDS, pretend they are drug addicts. There you go, sneers David. It's better to be a junkie than a queer. This place is disgusting. You said, uh, I think later in that chapter, you say it felt sick to be there. It didn't feel sick to be there, but it, it, there's just, it just feels terrible to have to observe uh, all this stuff going on. That, that after, the, after that bit in the book, I go to this amazing meeting uh, with this doctor from Siberia who has all these young activists, because if, you're, if you are gay in Russia, you don't know anything about anything. You have, no, you have no idea even that AIDS exists because there's no information about anything. You live very secretly. Uh, if anyone finds out that you're gay, you're liable to be uh, beaten up, uh, uh, killed, forced to commit suicide. It's a really, really tough world. And um, it's just, it was, it was, it's very sad. It's very difficult to watch because there's nothing very much one can do. Mm. And in light of um, Putin's law this week about um, not being able to mention or promote homosexuality uh, in schools and so on, um, do you agree with Stephen Fry that Putin is, is making scapegoats of gay people just as Hitler did Jews? Absolutely, and I also agree with him that we should um, hijack the Olympics. And boycott them. Yeah, and, yeah. definitely. I think that, that, the, my, that was the last time I went to Russia, and I just felt... At the end of it, they're just—they are very, very cruel in a way. I mean, no, you can't generalize about things, but their they, their system is very, very cruel, and it's been so—they've been, you know, they've gone from communism to this new—they've been hijacked by all the oligarchs, really, and the poor people are poorer than ever. You go outside of Moscow, uh, 20 miles, and it's like being in 1950s Russia still. Uh, it's a—it's a disgraceful uh, system they have going. And particularly as a homosexual, it's extremely, extremely upsetting to see how, uh, just for being homosexual, uh, you're liable to be treated. And it seems so extraordinary. I mean, you know, Russia's a fully-fledged capitalist country in so many ways. Uh, you know, things have changed a lot since 1989, 1990. Have you a sense of why this um, extraordinary prejudice remains in Russia? Uh, because uh, religion is still very uh, powerful there, um, you know, uh, it's the same as, uh, as things were here until uh, quite recently. It's the same as things are in, in many areas in the world. Travelling around promoting movies and things, you come across so many stories of, of um, you know, honour killings of, of gays in, um, in Turkey. Uh, it's, a, it's a very barbaric world. It's, uh, you know, we're very lucky. Uh, this country is a very lucky country, and I think it's personally it's a shame that we're squabbling now about things like um, independence and stuff like that because we're very lucky just to be living the lives that we are living. And I think if we learnt more history and we learnt more, I mean, certainly as a gay person, if I knew, I do know more history now. So I feel very lucky uh, being in the in the in the world that I am, uh, considering that you know in the 18th century there was pillorings and burnings at the stake before that and burials alive and drownings. Uh, I feel very lucky to, to be living in the way I am and I think 
we in this country, uh, as a liberal country, I, you know, w w which we're meant to be, being able to do whatever we want uh, without hurting other people is so great to, 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 to keep our eye on. Where we, where everywhere around us, it's just this chaos uh, of vindictive chaos and, ag and aggressive. And I think it's, a, I think it's a shame for us to, to uh, squabble. Well, to squabble in the same way that everyone else squabbles. Well. Thank you so much, Rupert. I'm going to ask Paul to switch the house lights up a little bit. And while everyone's thinking about their questions that they'd like to ask Rupert, just to um, quickly um, house do a tiny bit of housekeeping, which is simply that at the end of this event, Rupert will, of course, be signing copies of his books in the signing tent. So I urge you all to, um, if you haven't already purchased and read The Vanished Years, it is absolutely superb not only hilarious but also dark and serious it's a wonderful book so um if you have a question could you put your hand in the air don't be shy there's a hand there and could you wait for the microphone to come your way hello hi um just um as we've just had the new doctor who announced peter capaldi just wondering have you ever been approached um to be asked to be doctor who and if so would you would you take the job? I tried to be Doctor Who, but it was turned <laughs> down. So uh, yeah, I, I, I would have liked to, but then it's uh, filmed in Cardiff, and I don't think I'd like to be in Cardiff for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Better Glasgow than Cardiff. I don't know, just going down to Cardiff. There's not even a good restaurant in Cardiff. <laughs> no, I'm sure there is, actually. <laughs> Which, at which point did you make this attempt? Was it this, this round? Or no, about the two rounds ago. Right, the sort of David Tennant round. I don't mean that about Cardiff, yeah. actually. But yeah. <laughs> Great, let's retract that. Um, and what kind of Doctor Who would you have liked to have been? Well, I How don't know, because I, I haven't really watched it since uh, the old days, since uh, I was a child. But I just, I, you know, something. You just sort of fancied it. I get in there. Yeah, you did, yeah. Any more questions? There's a hand down here at the yes. front. Yes. Yeah, wait. Sorry, this is very flippant and superficial. How did you know that Mar uh, Madonna was playing with Sean Cobb? <laughs> <laughs> well, good question. <laughs> because it was really obvious, and then they went to the loo for ages and never came back, so I just put two and two together. <laughs> That's an excellent question, madam. Um, yeah, a hand up here, thank you. <laughs> I saw her eyes bulge. <laughs> I, I absolutely loved Vanish Years. It just oh, made you. me cry. It was just brilliant. But I wondered, do you still have your house in the south of France? And what sort of state of renovation is it in now? No, I was forced to sell it, unfortunately. Oh, shame. I know, real shame, because it's probably worth billions now. <laughs> Um, no, I was forced to sell it almost after the, the chapter I wrote about it, because um, I was broke at that point, and I, and, and I had a mortgage, and um, I, I had to sell it, sadly. I was going to come and visit you. Oh, well. <laughs> but that is this, this whole section in the book about living in the south of France, um, it's, it's great fun, but it was also it was a time of great sort of liberation for you, is that right? Did uh, you not way, kind of slide out of the closet during those years? Um, um, yes, I suppose so. I went to live in France. Uh, it, it, yes, living outside of England was... Uh, was um, I don't know that I literally sl slid out of the closet, but um, 
I, um, and I don't know, there was a, it was quite a sad time for me, really, in one sense, because I was quite isolated um, living in the countryside in France. I'm a Gemini, and I do things... Uh, I got a house in the south of France, which I know it was, a, it was a building site, and I ended up living there thinking it was going to be, I don't know, Brigitte Bardot and me having lunch or something, and it just ended up me on my own having lunch <laughs> uh, in this empty house all winter long with no he heating or anything, and, and then I couldn't pay the bills, and the electricity got turned off, then my car broke down, and then I was just stranded there. So it was quite a tough time in a way. It's not always lunch with McDonald's. I mean, I think that's one of the extraordinary things about the book is that, um, on the one hand, you know, as it were, one minute you appear to be having lunch with Madonna and watching her fondle Sean Penn's penis. Um, you know, the, the next minute almost you destitute, seem to be yes. destitute. <laughs> which is why I think that telegraph description of it's like Brideshead Revisited rewritten by Sebastian Flight is actually rather accurate. Although by the end I don't think Sebastian Flight could have wielded a pen. But uh, which is a... Yes, no, I just, I, that, my South of France foray was, it was a kind of mistake in a, in a way because I didn't have the money to... I just, I was, uh, I was, uh, it was a mistake. So yes, it's been very up and down in my life, I suppose. There's a hand right up there. I've read that you said that you don't think of yourself as a writer and writing comes hard to you. And there's gossip that, that a lot of, that you, you get some help from friends with your writing. Can you clear that up? How much input is there from other people? Um, there's no input from other people. Um, I write my, I've written all my own stuff. But I find it very hard. I, I'm an actor, so um, being used to a group activity uh, is uh, very difficult when, they, when you're doing an activity on your own. Um, but uh, no, I write my own books. And how far is the is there a performative aspect in the books? I mean, do you do you perform? Do you kind of have a sense of them being? out loud? Do you, do, you, do you read your words out loud to yourself? No, but I, I come from a background of reading scripts and plays, so uh, I do have a sense of drama and uh, trying to retain a kind of tension, uh, a, a dramatic tension, and, um, and making things into a, a... You know, it's very easy when you're writing memoirs to get off on a ramble about uh, things that you find interesting and that other people may find less interesting. So I do think uh, my probably my good quality as a writer is having... Uh, had, had this uh, background in reading screenplays which really do hammer out uh, dramatic points and um, so I think um, I've managed to retain some kind of uh, dramatic tension anyway in my books. Well it's interesting because Vanished Years has a very particular shape um, and notably it becomes quite in, in very moving and quite bleak towards the end of the book because you do talk about, I mean there is pervaded by this sense of death in fact and these great friends of yours, Natasha Richardson, Isabella Blow, um, die, and you are also very concerned with the, your very elderly father. Was that, I mean, was there a kind of, you know, I mean, it's a stupid question, were you consciously shaping it? Of course you were, but was, how, how did you configure the sort of arc of the book? Well, because I'd written a, another memoir before, which was purely linear, which was going, just basically going from A to Z, I had to come up with a different formula, and I thought, rather revolutionary one, which is iPod on shuffle, uh, <laughs> which uh, is quite modern, I thought, uh, because the, since now people don't seem to be able to concentrate on more than a vignette at a time. So I just made, uh, I made the stories really... Um, they don't necessarily, they're certainly not linear in time, and uh, they just go from, uh, from different, on, to different subjects, really. Mm. 
Any more hands? Oh, gosh, tons. So that's great. Uh, so can we go see this gentleman here, uh, just where you are, and then to the lady in the row in front? No. Oh, you've, someone got the mic, is that? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, madam. Sorry. Um, we were lucky enough to see you this year in Judas Kiss in Hampstead. Oh, which last was year. Last year. Mm. Mm. Uh, which was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Short memory. Um, I think you were born to play that role. Oh, thank you. Do you consider that that's your role of a lifetime and your lifetime project? Um, well, it certainly is at the moment. And um, I do think that David Hare's play is an amazing, amazing play. And I don't know that there's many roles that are better than that role. Uh, and. I joked with him at the end of the run of it uh, that I would probably still be playing it age 75 and uh, lurching on as Oscar Wilde, you know, in some flea pit up in... I don't remember Cardiff. Listening. No, it's Cardiff, yes. <laughs> I've maybe able to marry it in with a walk-on in uh, Doctor Who. Uh, but, um, but funnily enough, I'm sure I, I think I will go on playing uh, David's play because um, I might do it... There's a, a theatre festival in Italy called the Spoleto festival which is a great festival I might try and do it there and I live a little bit now in Naples uh, and uh, there's a great theatre in Naples called the Teatro Mercandanto and uh, you I might try and do it there too so I'm, I th I'm sure I will go on playing that play because I don't think I'll ever get a better part probably um, whether I can play any other parts who knows I'm not sure Hope great, so. great excuse for a trip to the Spalletto festival mm. um, there were a bunch of hands up in this section, so could yeah, could you send the mic or do you want? Yes, it's with you. So hi, um, hi. yeah, my um, question was quite similar to the to the lady there. I mean, you said uh, your time at the Citizens Theatre kind of fulfilled your fantasies of being an actor, but I was going to ask you what you consider your best role to have been, or which role are you have you been most fond of in your long career? Well, I think uh, I, that's I've I've. The best thing is to die to all of them as quickly as possible, I think. Um, I, I, I think, uh, for example, definitely the role in David Hare's play is a great one, but it's the most recent one I've played. Um, I think uh, for various different reasons, I've enjoyed really a lot everything I've done, even the things that were disastrous, because the disastrous things uh, to do have often been the things that have blown one into you know, a really unexpected new area. Um, and um, so... <laughs> I think it's good. It's very difficult. For example, now, because I was very lucky in the, in the David Hare play, uh, it's quite scary to think of what your next step is if you're going to carry all that baggage of being a success last year with you. And I think the best thing to try and do is to die to it and to try and start off at zero and to expect... Uh, and not, I think the thing about being an actor or a performer or an artist is it doesn't stay with you forever. Sometimes it comes and sometimes it goes. Uh, in your life, I think, and uh, I think one has to just accept that. And um, and if it's gone the next time, it's gone. Um, but um, I try, or I have, I kind of forgotten about things in a way. In that sense, which was my favourite, which not. I, I think of the trips more than the roles. Actually, some great trips I went on. It's, go ahead, sir. Uh, in your uh, role as Miss Fritton in the Citrinians uh, films, did you look back at all to Alistair Sims' characterisation? 
Yes, absolutely, because Centrinians was my idea to do, and so I thought very carefully about it, because Alistair Sim, A, is one of my very favorite actors, and B, it's normally a mistake to try and do a remake of a very, very successful film, and uh, the, the first three Centrinians films are kind of faultless, uh, certainly from his point of view. But then, I just had this notion, uh, uh, when once watching them, that he was called Millie, and Millie is short for Camilla, and then I suddenly had this idea, my God, Camilla. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and as soon as I had Camilla as an idea, I thought, this is a really winning idea, because I could play kind of Camilla Parker Bowles and my mother uh, all together as Miss Fritton. It would be different to Alistair Sim. It's, and it's difficult to reinvent something that someone has done so brilliantly, but I think the Camilla idea was, uh, was a, definitely a really good one. You suddenly reminded me about your, your uh, thinking that um, Alan uh, Sugar resembled Sid James and, was mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Margaret was like Hattie Jakes <laughs> in your ill-fated oh, time on The Apprentice. The Apprentice. Yeah. Mm. That didn't go well, did it? The Apprentice. You didn't know what it was, did you? Well, no, I didn't have a television at that, uh, mm. at that point, so um, <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what it was, no. But um, the Duchess of Cornwall is a very, very game lady because when um, we were doing the premiere of St. Trinian's, I uh, wrote her a letter asking, because I had this fantasy of arriving for the first night of the premiere in Leicester Square in a mini with her, uh, like, w very late and just rushing in chatting and then not even uh, stopping for the paparazzi. And I thought it'd be really funny uh, that, and that I'd be her sister. And she nearly went for it. She's, uh, she thought it was a very funny idea. <laughs> What kind of stops her? Uh, <laughs> 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 Any more questions from the audience before I can? Sean Penn's cock, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Not Prince Charles's. <laughs> <laughs> Just asking. <laughs> With the microphone. In the book, um, when you were talking about the club where you get recognised and you give Jeremy Irons as your name, any particular reason for choosing Jeremy? You've got to tell the story oh, properly. because he's a sex maniac. <laughs> so it would have fitted in. <laughs> this is... If you're not going to tell the story, I am. We, oh, okay. you know, I think, no, I think I'd rather you did. Oh, this is a story in my book uh, about when I was... Um, went to a nude Sunday by mistake in a, a Berlin uh, leather bar. And, uh, <laughs> when, and I hadn't really wanted to go, viewers, really. Uh, but I did. And when you go to these new places, they give you a plastic bag and you put all your clothes in it and they give you a ticket. And you put the plastic bag in the thing. Anyway, I gave my ticket in at the end when I'd been there for... Long time. You can, lots of things happened while I was there, but uh, and the ticket, uh, <laughs> the ticket they were was were not my clothes. It was someone else's clothes. So I was stuck in this queue of people uh, trying, hoping that no one was going to recognise me. And uh, eventually, these two boys from Lancashire uh, arrived, and they said, "Hey, he looks like um, what's your name?" And so I just said, "Jeremy Irons." And, <laughs> And eventually I found my, my clothes. Not after, not after a little bit of bad temper? No, 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 I got very bad tempered, yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful image, isn't it? Um, 
Any more hands in the audience? There must be, there must be. Yes, there's a hand. Oh, was that a follow-up question from Madam? Hi. Hi. Um, are there any film roles that you've turned down in the past that you regret now? Um, oh, well, I was offered a... Not really, no. <laughs> I mean, yes, in, not really, because when you... you no. And I didn't get, ever get offered anything like amazing that was then uh, a gigantic success. But, um, but you know, there are things that you see afterwards you think, oh God, I would have... There are lots of things I tried to get that I really regret not getting. I tried and tried and tried to be in The Mission, which was one of my favorite films. And I felt with my Catholic, uh, Jeremy Irons Jeremy again, again. Fucking sex maniac. <laughs> and I felt that he's such a Protestant as well. You can tell. And, <laughs> And I felt as a Catholic and monastery-educated Catholic, I really had it, you know, that role I could have really given something to. And uh, I was desperate to be in that. And that's one of, that literally is the only film I always look at. I love that film so much. And him in it, by the way. I just, um, but not, no, films, I've never was offered anything that was then, you know, it, I wasn't offered Jaws. <laughs> is there any, can I ask the converse question? Is there anything that you really regret having accepted? Um, no, life's too short to regret all these things. You know, it's only it's a, it's a it's a the job of an actor in one sense is you know we're only happy hookers. You know, we, it, it's not it's not that big a deal the whole thing. I think uh, and yes, there's there's things that have been unpleasant jobs to do, um, um, but but not really. The whole thing is always it's a, it's fascinating going into a little microcosm world because if you go on a film. You get, you, you're with the same people for 15 weeks or 20 weeks, normally in a place, uh, a place that none of you live. And it is a very intense uh, thing of living with new people. And, uh, and it's rather like being the whole world. Um, you know, alliances are formed, embassies open and close, and uh, relationships start and finish. And it's, it's very interesting if you're an, a, a voyeur, which I am. And so none of them have really been, uh, I've never done a job that I've really regretted. All good material, as they say. Yeah. And do you keep a diary, or are you drawing Yes, I do. Yeah. 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 Especially on the computer, it's much easier. I used to write it out, and I can't read a word. Of it. It's indecipherable, my <laughs> early diary of, of uh, written words. So I think the computer definitely, for me, has changed everything. So Rupert, the early years are a bit approximate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Any more hands in the audience? Yes. Yeah, so, so, oh, so we've got two in quick succession, which we will take. Um, Gentleman in the chat shirt first. Rupert, you did a fantastic coffee advert with your self-deprecating humour against critics. How do you get on with the critics, and do you actually read your reviews? I don't dare read my reviews, no, uh, because I like what I like about the reviews is for other people to read them and then to ring you up. <laughs> That's the ideal way, and then they can break it to you slowly if there's a bad thing, or normally if they if if you've got your friends well trained. They just don't call you, and then they talk about something else. But no, reading them is terrifying. And I feel about the critics, I feel a little bit sorry for the theatre critics, because compared to the ballet critics and the opera critics, who have a chance to review international ideas, so that you, know, you have a production of Rigoletto set inside a, a public loo or something like that, the, the theatre... Uh, since the end of the world theatre season, which was in, I think the last one was in 1972, when uh, the world's theatre came to England. Um, it's, it really has been um, 
the, the, the critics have only seen one type of theatre, which is a, a kind of Cambridge University English literature, Inglit theatre, which uh, was started by John Barton, uh, Trevor Nunn, or Peter Hall, all of them uh, are Cambridge intellectuals. And I'm not criticizing that type of theatre. It's all about the word uh, rather than the image, for example. And, uh, you know, the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, has obviously been, done amazing work, and, and, uh, but the critics have only really seen that type of work. And they feel quite defensive, I feel, about any other type of work. Uh, and I think that's partly because they aren't, they don't see very much of it. You know, Patrice Chéreau, who is the greatest director in France, only, has only been here twice in his whole career, uh, once in 1972 and once last year. Peter Stein, we don't have a tradition anymore of, of foreign theatre, so we only have our own, um, our own world. And, and, and sometimes it, it's slightly one level, and so they feel sometimes when it goes out of that level, uh, they, they don't feel comfortable with it. It's Possibly an honourable exception to the Edinburgh International Festival, which does have a, 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 a lot of international theatre. Right. But, uh, but no, we take your point. Um, the um, there was yes. Rupert, I heard you read the passage about the Embassy um, TV series on Radio Four. I think. Oh, right. I thought it was hilarious. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I wondered um, if you would have liked to have been. HM ambassador in no. Washington, and, and what drew you to that role? I know I would love to have been. I, I was drawn to the role because I was plotting, as usual, how to to have achieve world domination, really. <laughs> and um, and um, television is te American television is a weird thing because while uh, it's very quite difficult to be gay in American movies, in American television, for some reason, it's got a different rule book, and you can be. And um, and I thought, I've got to think of a thing that I can really rule American television in the same way that Mary Tyler Moore did or Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> and I thought, Mr. Ambassador is really talking uh, to America because he's, Mr. he's the ambassador from the rest of the world to, through the screen to America. And I thought I could really rip off uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister and all those things and make uh, a Mr. Ambassador series. And it, it was a pretty good idea. Um, it just you know, all went wrong. But I would love to have been uh, a diplomat. Not at Washington, though. Where would you have liked to have been posted? Uh, Paris. Um, in I that would, nice house that yeah, they have. Yeah, I wouldn't yes. like the, the, yeah. that Washington Embassy in, by Lutchins I don't like very much. Mm. Also, oh. too much work in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> And what would you have brought to the diplomatic role? Savoir-faire, jeunesse, <laughs> un certain charme, <laughs> Sean Pentcock. <laughs> I think it's a shame because in America you can be an actor and go and get a, an, a position like that. I think it would be a great kind of put it being put out to grass uh, thing for English actors. Is this, a, is this a pitch? It would be great, wouldn't it, if one could just go off and... Uh, be the Hong Kong uh, ambassador. That'd be lovely. That could be your, that yeah, could be your I would next love to job. Do that. Mm. If the film doesn't come off, mm. ambassador to Paris. No, because I'd have to go through that whole diplomatic school and then start at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Which bottom? <laughs> Increase the gaiety of nations, anyway. Um, we've got time for one last quick question. Right at the back. Hello. Hi. Hi. Do you ever wish that, as an actor, you'd stayed in the closet because of the effect it's had on the roles you've been offered? Um, not really, no, because um, I've got too, I'm, too, I'm not discreet enough to stay in the closet. Uh, I, I, and I'm not a good enough uh, or a thorough enough liar. I'm a good liar, but uh, I can't ever remember the last lie I told. You know? <laughs> 
And so if you were going to be in the closet, you really have to take that very, very... I'm not against people being in the closet either. I think it's, uh, you know, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But it's a, it's a lot of work. Um, and um, and it just not, it wouldn't have suited me. I think being an actor is about being out there in the world and you know, doing as much as you possibly can. I don't agree with this kind of compounds with security guard world of, of acting. And my favorite type of actor is the Elizabethan actor. And when they arrived in the, in the town, all the girls were locked up. And when you know, Richard, II was, Richard III was doing his speech, he probably had done things like murder and robbery, so that there was a real danger in how they acted. That's that's the kind of actor I want to be. <laughs> that's no, quite I mean, frightening. Yeah, yeah not to be frightening. To be murdered. Um, do you think uh, your career has been damaged by your being open about your sexuality? You can't really say that because I might not be that good anyway. So I could, you know, I could be. It, actually, my career could be a miracle as it is. Uh, we don't know. We will. Ne we will never find out. <laughs> uh, but um, I think it's been equally as equally damaged as it has been made. Put it that way. You know, one is what one is, as Prince Charles probably said. Yeah. <laughs> on that me on that regal note, I'm, I'm sad to say, very sad to say, that we're going to have to wrap up this hour. But. Um, I hope that shortly you will join us in the signing tent where Rupert will be signing, which is left out of the door. I hope that you'll just let us make an escape before you do so that we can get there first. But right now, I would like you to join me in thanking Rupert Everett for a terrific hour. And thank you very much, too. Thank you very much. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.